Amen. Kids, up through fifth grade, you're dismissed. You may sprint as fast as you can to your classrooms, as most of you usually do on Sunday morning, or you can walk at your own pace. For the rest of you, please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of James, chapter 2, verses 8 to 13. That's James, chapter 2, verses 8 to 13. And as you're turning there, we have a uh, prayer uh, request that uh, praise, excuse me, that we need to praise the Lord for, an answered prayer, and that is Naomi being able to rejoin us on the worship team. Praise the Lord. It just hit me all of a sudden. I'm just so used to seeing you at the piano. All of a sudden, I just say, oh my goodness, Naomi is up there. And Naomi fell and broke her, broke her wrist. When was that, Naomi? In July, and then uh, had surgery, and then in recovery, had some kind of more complication, had to have another surgery for carpal tunnel, which uh, on the same wrist, which they weren't sure if it was going to be able to even have an effect at all, and so we've just been praying and praying, and I know there's still some, you know, still a little ways to go, but it's a huge answered prayer even having you up here, and so we just give all the glory to God. Praise the Lord for that. It's so great to have you back on worship team, Naomi. Like I said, we're going to be in James chapter 2 uh, this morning, verses 8 to 13, a second uh, sermon in our little two-sermon mini-series on favoritism, a little behind-the-curtain look. It was supposed to be just one sermon on favoritism on James chapter 2, verses 1 to 13, but there was just too much in there for one sermon. And so we are going to be closing off this section in James this morning uh, in verses 8 to 13, talking about favoritism once again. So before we do that, please bow your heads with me, and we will pray, and then we'll begin. Oh, Heavenly Father, Lord, we, uh, we're just so grateful for this time to be together as a family, to worship you in this place. We go and we scatter throughout our week to the places you call us to be, but we come and we gather together in this place on Sunday as a family to worship you, and we thank you for that privilege that we have, God. We praise you. Lord, we thank you for these families that stood up here and dedicated themselves, their children, to raising their children uh, in homes uh, that love you, that take your word seriously, that take discipleship seriously. Lord, that's no small thing. That's no easy task to be able to even give our children to you and say, Lord, this child is not mine. It's yours. Do with them according to your will, Lord. It takes in a tremendous amount of trust and faith. And so, Lord, we just pray um, in Scripture where it says, I believe, but help my unbelief, God. We pray for these parents, those who dedicated their children this Sunday, and, and for all who are parents and even grandparents in, uh, in this church, Lord, that we would be able to do just that and trust you that you are good. Lord, I pray that as we look to your word this morning, uh, that you would give us eyes to see what you want us to see, that the way we act would reflect what's already happened in our hearts in the gospel, Lord. We thank you for your grace for where we fall short. We thank you for the spirit guiding us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, like I said, this is uh, the second sermon of our little two-part mini-series on the uh, showing partiality, or another word for that is favoritism. We saw in uh, verse 1 of chapter 2, James gives this overarching point that governs all 13 verses here. Look at it with me in verse 1 of chapter 2. It just says, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. That's kind of his intro statement for what was to come. 
Don't show favoritism. If you are following Jesus, don't show favoritism. And then he gives this illustration of what was going on in the church. He said, if you have a rich person come into your church and a poor person come into your church and you say to the rich person, you take the good seat. You say to the poor person, you go over there and sit on the floor. You're fawning all over yourself to, uh, to, uh, falling over yourself to, to give a, a preference to the rich person. Then you have committed a sin of showing favoritism. We saw last week two reasons why this was a problem. We're going to see a third this morning. But the two we saw last week, we saw that showing favoritism goes against the very nature of the gospel. Like the definition of the gospel is not compatible with the definition of showing favoritism. Remember we talked about what it takes to follow Jesus. There's only one requirement in following Jesus. The only requirement to come to Jesus is recognizing you got nothing to offer him. That there's nothing that you have that is worthy of being saved in and of yourself. And we talked about the pie chart of salvation, of who contributes what. It's 0% you, 100% Jesus. And the gospel is the recognition of the fact that it is only, only, only by grace through faith that I am saved. And so we talked about in Scripture, we kind of see this thing happen over and over again. Where Jesus, and then in the New, later New Testament letters as well, it almost it, it, it talks about the fact that if you are a rich person, if you are like rich and success, successful in the world's eyes, it's almost going to be harder for you to come to Jesus because you still have to recognize this safety net that I'm building for myself in this world is of absolutely no value in the next. And so showing partiality or favoritism toward the rich, it goes against the gospel because it completely misunderstands the point that we said last week. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. I love that. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. So not only does favoritism go against the gospel, James says, but it also doesn't make any sense. That was point number two. Reason number two why not to show favoritism. It goes against the gospel, and it doesn't make any sense. Why would you show partiality and favoritism toward these people who are oppressing you? They're dragging you into court. They're even blaspheming the name of God. Why would you do that? Why would you show preference to these people who are making life worse for you? And our takeaway was we need to be careful who we look up to, right? We need to be careful who our role models are. The people that we're, we all allow people to disciple us. Whether you know it or not, you're being discipled by other people. So the people you look up to, the people that you're allowing to disciple you, you need to make sure that they are leading you more into Christ-likeness and not less. Like I said last week, this passage has been extremely convicting for me because I think this idea of showing favoritism is something that almost happens at like the subconscious level. Like you don't even think about it. Very rarely do you see two people and you say, I'm going to show favoritism to this person over that person, right? It's just something that like instinctually can just happen, but it's a sin, James says, and so we need to be like hyper aware of this as we go throughout our lives, not only recognizing the danger of when it can happen, but also when we've already done it. Shoot, I blew it there. I showed favoritism to that person over that person. It's really convicting. Unfortunately, James doesn't let up in the conviction in our passage this week. He just goes for it. He just like kind of drives the knife in further. 
Our passage this week is actually these verses 8 to 13. They're actually a, a, a little bit more difficult to understand the argument that he's making here. He's making an argument, but it's a little bit harder to understand. Like last week, the two points I felt were very clear. This week, it's a little bit more difficult to see. And that sometimes just happens in Scripture. I don't know if you ever, anyone, raise your hand if you've ever read a passage of Scripture and thought, I don't really understand what this says. Go ahead, raise your hand. Yeah, that's pretty much, other than Christopher Salisbury, that's pretty much everyone, so... That happens, right? It's, like, it's kind of like, uh, so I don't raise, if, you're a, if you like seafood, raise your hand if you like seafood. Raise your hand if you think seafood is gross. Raise your hand. There's, oh, that's about 50-50, actually. Interesting. So uh, probably because we live in Indiana and most seafood in Indiana is gross. So, um, <laughs> but, so it's kind of like this. This is the best analogy I can think of, though. It's like, uh, um, so Charles Wolfer was telling me about this crab dip that he likes to get. There's like one grocery store in all of Indiana that sells it. And he brought, he went, like drove like an hour out of his way on a business trip one time to get this crab dip. And, uh, but it's just like, it's there for you, right? You just, it's easy to eat. You just dip a chip in it and just take a bite and it's delicious. It's just like, there's nothing challenging about eating this crab dip. So it's like some passages of scripture are like that. Like we read Romans 8 in our uh, call to worship. It's like, that's just like, yes, give it to me. Yeah, here we go. But then there's other passages of scripture. It's more like eating crab legs, right? You ever order crab legs at a restaurant? They bring like this like cracker thing. You don't know how to do it or how in the world you're going to get the meat out. It's like the meats, it's, it's the same meat. It's still in there. It's just a little bit more difficult to get to, right? So sometimes when you read God's word, you think, I don't understand this. You can either A, be tempted to think this isn't as important for me to understand, which is not true. But it also can be tempted to think I'm just never going to be smart enough to understand this. Also not true. You just got to do a little more work, a little more digging. But the meat's still in there, and it's still good. And that's how I feel about our passage this week. It's, he's, James is making an argument, and it's, it, once you get there, you can see what he's doing. But it just takes a little bit more digging, a little bit more cracking into that crab leg, so to speak, to get the meat out. So here's what he's saying uh, as, as this argument that he's making. I'm just going to kind of give it to you up front, and it won't make a ton of sense until we really dive into it. But this is what James is saying. He says, you are guilty of showing favoritism. You've been doing this. You've been treating the rich better than the poor. You're guilty of that. He says showing favoritism breaks the law. So this is the third part of his argument. It goes against the gospel. It doesn't make sense. And then it breaks the law. So he says you've broken the law in showing favoritism. And then the next part of his argument, breaking the law is a big deal. It's not a small thing. This is a big deal what you've done. Then he says, since you've been given mercy as lawbreakers, you need to show other people mercy. Then to bring it all around, kind of all the way to the end of the circle, when you're, not showing, when you're showing favoritism, you're not showing mercy. So it shows that you do not understand the gospel. So that's what he's saying. Favoritism breaks the law. It's a big deal to break the law. There's no way to break the law in a small way. It's always a big deal. So show people mercy because you're lawbreakers. But when you're showing favoritism, you're not showing people mercy. That's maybe clear as mud right now, but we'll get there, I promise, in the end. We're going to take these things one by one. So the first thing we're going to see, it's already on your screen, showing favoritism breaks God's law. Look at verse 8 with me. It says, if you really fulfill the royal law, according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, 
you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Showing favoritism, James says, is the opposite of following the law. And the opposite of following the law is? Come on, we got a couple police officers here. We need them to know that we know that. The opposite of following the law is? Thank you. Very good. When James says the royal law here, he's talking about the Old Testament law, the law that God gave to Israel. And he sums it all up. This is a common thing to do. He sums up the whole law by quoting Leviticus 19, 18, which says, love your neighbor as yourself. So James says, if you do that, you're doing the right thing. The goal is loving your neighbor as yourself. But favoritism is the opposite of that. Showing favoritism means you're not loving your neighbor as yourself. You're breaking the law of loving your neighbor as yourself. And this is almost identical to what Jesus says in Luke chapter 10. Now, all the way at the beginning of our James series, we talked about the fact that the key to understanding James is to recognize that in almost every sentence that we read in James, it is saturated in the background with the teachings of Jesus. And so there's almost everything he says, we can point to directly something in the Gospels where Jesus taught these things. And so there's actually two parables that I think James is alluding to here that we're going to see this morning. The first one is a familiar one to us, is the parable of the Good Samaritan. It's in Luke chapter 10. You can turn or tap there with me if you want, but you can also follow along on your screen here. It says this, Behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? This happened to Jesus a lot, right? People tried to trap him or test him. And what does Jesus usually do when people come to him and try to trap him or test him? He responds, not by answering, but with a question oftentimes. And so Jesus says, verse 26, what's written in the law? How do you read it? Verse 27, he answered, the lawyer, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. So this is his summing up of the whole law. Deuteronomy 6, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Leviticus 19, 18, love your neighbor as yourself. Talk about the entire law here. And Jesus says, ding, 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 you got it. You're right. That's what you're supposed to do to inherit eternal life. Follow the law. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Do this and you'll live. The lawyer just couldn't help himself, could he? He should have just walked away, right, as a winner. Instead, he had to say, Ask one more question. Look at verse 29. Desiring to justify himself, he said to Jesus, he asks, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? Boom. That's the question right there. Who is my neighbor? Why does he ask that? Because he's desiring to do, desiring to do what? What's it say? Justify himself. Very good. This is very part, we're getting some participation this morning. That's good. He wants to justify himself. What's he really doing? He's drawing a line around himself is what he's doing. Saying, I understand that I need to love God and love my neighbor. But what I don't want to do is love somebody and then it turns out they're not my neighbor. And then I've wasted that, right? I've gone too far. I've gone above and beyond what I'm supposed to do. 
It's like uh, all these uh, fantastic kids that we had up here. You might be surprised to know that sometimes their parents have trouble getting them to eat their vegetables at night. So you, what do you do? You make these negotiations. All right, five more bites. And so then it's, it's like this tiny, tiny piece of broccoli on the plate. Does that count as a bite, Mom? It's like this like half hour of just going back and forth of a, what is exactly five bites? What is the legal definition of five bites so I can get up and leave the table? Has that ever happened in anyone's households? No, of course not. Don't even, you don't even need to raise your hand because I know that's never happening. Definitely not in our house. It's the same thing that the lawyer's doing when he says, who is my neighbor? He's trying to figure out just exactly how far he has to go, and he doesn't want to have to take one more step. So what does Jesus say? He responds by telling him a story. Tells a story of a man who's robbed, left on the side of the road for dead. Three people walk by. The first one's a priest, one of the wise and understanding among the Jews. What does he do? Does he stop to help? Nope. Walks right on by. Second person walks by, a Levite, member of the proud ruling class. What does he do? Does he stop to help? Walks on by. Then who comes by? A Samaritan. A dirty, rotten, no good Samaritan. I mean, this there's Jews had some history with the Samaritans. We won't get into that, but just suffice it to say, this was just this was the person that would have hurt the most to hear that he did anything good the Samaritan walks by and he has compassion and he takes care of the man and Jesus says which of these men was a neighbor and the lawyer can't even bring himself to say the words the Samaritan it just tastes so gross coming out of his mouth so he says the one who showed mercy and Jesus says go and do Likewise, so the lawyer is trying to draw this boundary of who exactly is my neighbor and who do I not have to worry about. And Jesus doesn't respond by defining that line. He responds by erasing that line. Nobody is outside of the boundary of who we're called to love. There's no one who is unlovable. I was convicted of this in a major way one time. Uh, when I messed up in a major way, which is usually when the, my conviction happens the most. I was on this, I've told you about before, the Spread Truth mission trip in New York City, and where you go, and some, some of you have even gone on this trip before, but you, you basically you go and you spend a week on the streets of New York City, uh, you set up like this little prayer station, and you have vests that say prayer changes things, and you ask people to pray, and it's really cool, the things that you, you know you, you wouldn't expect to happen, but God really moves and works through that, and uh, so we did, did this, and we were out... Uh, one day, we were on the streets of Harlem, I think we were, and we were, I don't know, we'd been out there for a couple hours praying with people and talking to people and learning their stories, and, and uh, it was really neat. And then as I'm standing out there, I see these three men walk up, uh, kind of, they're walking a little bit uh, towards where we are, and uh, they are, I, I'm sorry for the disturbing image, but there's no other way to say it. They were dressed like female prostitutes, essentially, and, um, and I'm sure that they were, like, transgendered prostitutes and um and i it's a little taken aback just I'm a, I'm a small town country boy and i was not you know maybe if you live in new york you kind of get used to seeing these things but i was not and so i was just stunned for a second and then uh, kind of when i realized what i was seeing i kind of just looked down and they walked past and and as they're walking away i didn't ask them to pray if they wanted to pray and as they're walking away you ever have that where God just lets you know you really messed up big time? God's just like preaching a sermon at you. 
just like this dagger in my heart when I realized what I'd done. Like Jesus telling me, you know I died for them, right? Why didn't you ask to pray with them? Put you here on this street corner for a reason. I knew they were going to walk by, and you did not offer to pray with them. You know the gospel's for everyone, right? You know I love them desperately. You know more than anything, I want them to know me. Ugh. Hurts. A lesson I would never forget. Loving your neighbor as yourself has no boundaries because the gospel has no boundaries. Amen, church? There's no one outside the line of who we're called to love. You think about the audacity of this man who asked Jesus who his neighbor was. Think about who he was asking, who do I really have to love? When Jesus was about to show his love for everyone by dying for them. So when we show favoritism, when we withhold love for people, from people, based on what they look like, or how they live, or what political party they're from, or the color of their skin, or the side of town they live on, or the country they were born in, or any other reason, we are breaking God's law. Breaking God's law, and that breaks God's heart. We might be tempted to think that this part of the law is not a big deal. That's what was going on to the people James was writing to. They were tempted to think that this isn't really a big deal. But it is. James says it is a big deal. That's point number two. Breaking God's law is a big deal. Look at verse 10. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. This is where the passage starts to get a little bit confusing. Like, what are you talking about, James? I thought we were talking about showing favoritism, and now you're talking about adultery and murder. Why Why are you saying that? Well, this is, I think, what James is doing. It's like, picture a courtroom where a man is on trial for murder. And uh, his lawyer stands up to make his argument, and he says, Your Honor, I can tell you with 100% certainty under oath right now, my client has never once committed adultery. He's been faithful to his wife 100% of the time for his entire life. He's never committed adultery. What do you think the, the judge would say? I don't really know how courtrooms work, but maybe he'd say, like, what about the murder? The lawyer said, oh, yeah, he, he definitely did that murder. That was, yeah. But he never committed adultery. Innocent, right? No. Commit, breaking God's law is a big deal. He's still guilty. You don't get to, this is what James is saying, you don't get to pick and choose what parts of God's law you get to follow. You're liable to all of it. Your innocence in one area doesn't absolve your sin in another area. So the logic of James' argument here is that if you're showing favoritism, you're breaking the law, and you don't get to just hold up another part of the law and say, yeah, I show favoritism, but look at how good I do with these things. It's still a big deal, breaking God's law. 
Now, the recipients of this letter didn't think it was a big deal. They would have ranked this pretty low on their list of sins to avoid. But James is saying partiality is a big deal because breaking God's law is a big deal. So I think for us, we just need to recognize we can't minimize these little sins in our eyes, so-called. Because it's a big deal in God's eyes. Look at verse 12. So speak and act, understanding that you're liable to all of God's law. Now James says, speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. Man, what's he saying there? Speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. He just goes on. I was feeling the conviction. I think we all were that, man, these things that we think are little are actually a really big deal to God. So how are we supposed to act? Like we're judged under the law of liberty. Freedom. The law of freedom. What does that mean? How can the law bring liberty if the law is a bunch of rules to follow? Isn't, doesn't freedom mean freedom from a bunch of rules? Not exactly. And this is kind of hard for us to get our minds around because we all live in America. And so we all grew up learning the story of our country's freedom of like the, you know, telling this foreign king who's trying to make a bunch of rules for our founding fathers saying, hey, you're not the boss of us. We're in charge. You can't tell us what to do. We're the ones who are in charge, right? And so when we think of freedom, we think of freedom from anything outside of ourselves governing our lives. That's how we understand freedom. But Christian freedom is a completely different thing entirely. It's not just freedom from restrictions. It's more like getting directions when you're lost. That's what freedom is. How many of you ever, you know, you go, you think, I, I don't need to use my GPS, I know where I'm going, and you think you know where you're going, and then you end up lost, right? And so what do you do? You say, hey, Siri, tell me how to get to wherever. So then Siri pulls up the directions and then says, you know, turn left on Main Street. What do you do? You turn to your phone and say, you're not the boss of me, Siri. You don't get to tell me what to do. No, that would be weird. Did somebody's Siri just go off? I think I just heard that. That's funny. <laughs> Sorry about that. Whoever, we must have the same voice or something. Um, you're not the boss of me. You don't get to tell me what to do. You don't get to tell me where to go. I'm the one in charge here. How foolish would that be? It makes no sense. Those directions give you freedom to get to where you're going, and it's the same with God's law. I hope, that th- I hope you can grab onto this. It is not a burden to follow God's law. Sometimes we think it is. Sometimes we think we just need to do what God... Either, either we say, I'm going to do what God says, but I'm going to do it begrudgingly... I don't want to, but I just know I have to. Or we can just cast off all rules and say, I'm saved by grace. I'm not going to worry about what God says. Either way, 
You're missing the point that it is not a burden in any way to follow the law of God. God is not some kind of cosmic killjoy who wants to ruin your fun. God's law is a blessing to us because it tells us how to live in such a way that's going to bring us the most joy and most satisfaction and most happiness in him. Think about it. When Adam and Eve were in the garden, And the serpent told Eve to take the fruit and eat of it. What was he telling her? God gave you this law, but it's not for your good. In fact, if you take and eat that fruit, you're going to be like God. Following God's law, obeying, by not eating the fruit is actually going to keep you from living the fullest life you can live. That is the same lie he tells every single one of us every time we're tempted to sin. Yeah, you don't need to follow that. That's a burden to you. That law is keeping you from happiness when the reality is the exact opposite. God's law is what gives us freedom to find joy and satisfaction in him and in turn bring him the most glory. So what James is saying here is quit acting like breaking God's law by showing favoritism isn't a big deal. Following God's law brings freedom. So live like you're going to be judged by that law, which brings you freedom. So how do we do that? How do we live like those who are going to be judged by the law of liberty? Verse 13, show, show others the same mercy that you've been given. Look at verse 13. Judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Again, this is probably one of the more difficult verses to understand in terms of the context of why it says this here. But as usual, it goes back to the teaching of Jesus. And that's what James is bringing us to. That phrase, judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy, brings to mind another parable of Jesus in Matthew 18. You can look there in your Bibles now, or you can look on your screen. I'm just going to read it. Matthew 18, 23 to 35. That's what Jesus said. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Didn't even hold it over his head anymore. Forgave him the debt. So what was the servant's response? Verse 28, but when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 denarii, way less money than 10,000 talents. Not even comparable. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. So what happened? Did this bring back the memory of this servant to when the master forgave his debt? Obviously not. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. 
When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Man, it's probably one of the more convicting parables to me whenever I read it. How often do I, as someone who's been forgiven my incredible weight of sin, who's been given this mercy of every bitter thought and evil deed I've ever done, placed on Jesus at the cross, that's what I've been given. I've been forgiven my debt. How often do I withhold that same mercy to others? If we've been changed by the gospel, it's going to change how we live. So what James is saying, bringing this full circle, this is what happens when we show favoritism. Favoritism towards some people means lack of mercy toward others. You've been given a mercy in the gospel but when you denigrate people, when you treat them poorly based on outward appearances, when you look at them and say, they certainly aren't my neighbor, they're not the ones who count, love your neighbor as yourself, they're in a different category. When we do that, we're showing that we don't understand the mercy that we have been given. And mercy, James says, triumphs over judgment. So show mercy. Praise God for that mercy we have in Christ. Amen. How can we turn around and not show that same mercy to others? That's the argument. That's what James is saying. When we show favoritism, when we treat people based on the world's categories rather than the categories of the gospel, when we do that, we're showing that we do not understand the mercy that we've been given. So as we close, I just want to give us three quick applications for us as a church from these three points. First, let's be a people who radically love everyone. Don't be more concerned with who is and who isn't your neighbor than how you are with how you can actually love your neighbor. And if there's a person that comes to your mind or a group of people that come to your mind and you think, I hope this doesn't apply to them, guess what? It's probably the first people that it applies to. That's the number one person you need to ask the Lord to show you how to love Following God's law, his amazing freedom-giving law that is not a burden means that we're free to love our neighbor in radical and self-giving ways. And we can be sure that it's what's best for us, too. So let's be a people who radically love our neighbor. Secondly, let's be a people who take holiness seriously. Take holiness seriously. Let's not relegate some commands to be less important than other commands. Because God's law brings freedom, we don't need to believe that lie from the enemy that following it is a burden or that we can only follow some. We're going to mess up a lot, a lot, a lot, over and over and over again. But as followers of Jesus who are empowered by the Spirit to obey. Let's not ignore his law because, oh, God will forgive me, so it's just no big deal. It is a big deal to God. Little things and big things are a big deal to God. 
So let's be people who take that seriously. And then because we realize that, which means we realize how much mercy we need, let's be a people who overflow with mercy. Think about everything you've ever done in your life that was a sin. You can't. You can't even remember 1% of it. It's out of your memory. And every thought that you had that goes against what God would call you to even think. Like our record of debt is massive. And yet, God remembers it no more. He remembers our sin no more. We've been given this incredible mercy. The debt that has been forgiven of you is so far beyond any debt that any person could ever rack up against you. Your debt against God is so far greater than any single person's debt against you. And if God wiped yours clean, who am I to say I'm not going to wipe theirs clean? Let's be a people who overflow with this incredible, radical mercy because we've already experienced it. How could we not show it to the world? If we want the world to know how amazing it is to experience the mercy of God, the only way they're going to see it is how we show mercy to others, all people, everyone. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.